today. We're back in the book of John, if you want to turn to John chapter 12. And uh, next week, we will also be preaching from John chapter 12. And it's kind of cool because our series called The Word is going to be colliding with that little card on your seat, that little invite to invite your family and friends. And so um, with our next series, our Holy Week series called All Hail King Jesus. Next week, we'll be looking at, of course, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry out of the book of John. And yes, we will have palms. For you palm wavers, they are coming. Don't you worry, and I want you to wave them proudly next week, singing Hosanna. And uh, so it's kind of fun because we've kind of timed it up here where our our series in the book of John and our Easter series are going to collide next week with the triumphal entry. So last week, excuse me, two weeks ago, we were in chapter 11. We've been looking at the raising of Lazarus, right? The dead raised to life, Jesus being that resurrection and the life that he proclaims that whoever believes on him, We've talked a lot about believing because John talks a lot about believing, right? That that belief is a faith, not merely a mental assent or a mental understanding of who Christ is, but a belief that is rooted in the beholding of Christ and seeing him as God, as Messiah. And the roots of that word believing also correspond with the idea of faith, right? That's the same Greek root word there. And the, the one definition that I love to bring out that I saw in some lexicon somewhere, it said, to cast your life upon. That when you believe in Jesus, it's not just, yes, I believe in him like I believe in the Easter bunny. But I've cast my life upon him, my only hope, that hope that we just sang about, my hope, my belief is in him. I now see that he is the Christ. He's opened my eyes like he did in chapter 9 of the man who was born blind. I've seen his great love for me, for God so loved the world in chapter 3. And he's called my name like a good shepherd in John chapter 10. And I've beheld his matchless worth and I believe. I place my life in his hands, my loving Savior, the eternal word of God, the one who put on flesh, came down and dwelt among us and also died for us. I place my faith in believing in him, and now I have life in his name, as it says in John chapter 20. So Jesus, right, makes this declaration, I am the resurrection in the life. He loves Lazarus. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. He even subjects them to the pain of death. He loves them so much, he lets Lazarus die so that he can reveal his glory, that he can reveal his matchless worth. Talked about a few weeks ago how that's so important for us that we, always, we often talk about, you even saying it today with Canvas and Clay, right? He works all things for my good and for his glory. A couple weeks ago I said, you know what? I don't want us to separate those two things out too much because he works all things for his glory, which is my greatest good. It is important for us to behold his glory to see his matchless worth. Because when I behold him truly for what he is, I will cast my life upon him. I will truly believe on him. But I have to see. I have to see his glory. So he reveals his glory in allowing Lazarus to die so that he can once again raise him to to new life. And he raises him. Lazarus, who is dead, four days dead, by the way, too far gone dead, by the way, 
Not just dead, but stinky dead, he raises him. Like, not just, like, you ever find that thing in the back of the fridge, and you're like, hey, is this still good kind of thing? Like, the thing that you find in the back of your fridge, and you're afraid to open it, so you just throw the whole Tupperware out, dead. Like, I'll just buy a new Tupperware. Like, we're not even going to try to save that one. Lazarus comes out of the grave, stinky old Lazarus, takes off his grave clothes, and the people were amazed. Well, some people were amazed. Some people beheld him as the resurrection. Some people saw the Christ and believed, but some were so blind they ran off to tell the Pharisees. The Pharisees, of course, we looked at a couple weeks ago, they're worried about the Romans. Romans are going to come. They're going to hear about this Jesus guy. We need to put him to death because they're going to come and take our place, and they're going to come and take our nation. So Caiaphas, the high priest, explains to them, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to die. And he's actually prophesying, probably unknowingly. He's speaking God's word. He's speaking God's plan for the redemption of mankind, that Jesus would be our substitute, that he would stand in my place and die for my sins. That the weight of all of it, that the wrath of God would be put on him and not on me, the one who deserves it. He, without sin, became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I could be counted as the righteousness of God. As Caiaphas prophesies this beautiful plan of salvation that Jesus would die for the nation and not just the nation, but for anyone who would believe on him. So today, let's read our text, John chapter 12. I've lost my text sheet here. Not here. What's that? No, right? We got a Bible. John chapter 12. It's funny because I had notes on that page as well. Just means that this sermon's going to be shorter. Don't cheer. John chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at, with him at the table. Okay, so you get a picture of what this is? Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him, in parentheses, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having a charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you. 
but you do not always have me. Let's read the next couple of verses as well. It says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. That is so wonderful. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on the account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So, actually, let's pray. And then, actually, you know what? Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. You're getting a little glimpse of how my brain works, I think. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word, that it's perfect in revealing you. I pray that today, God, that we would see you again, that we would behold you again. God, that we would see this beautiful worship in this story from this beautiful family who loved Jesus and Jesus loved them. That we would see what worship could and should look like. And God, that we would be true worshipers of you. That we would see the resurrection power that is in you. That we would see the eternal life that is in you. God, that we would pour it all out and worship for you. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Actually, I just want to read those last couple verses again of, of the passage that we just read. So uh, verse 9, it says, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, okay, he's in this house, they're having a party, they're having a dinner party for him, and they came not only on the count of him, but also to see Lazarus. They wanted to see the man on display whom he had raised from the dead. Verse 10, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on the account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I thought, as I read that this week, I thought, man, this ties beautifully to what Dan preached last week about us, our lives, proclaiming Christ, getting out there and sharing the love of Jesus. Like, on the account of Lazarus and his life, on the account of Lazarus and what Lazarus has had uh, Jesus done in him, through him, what Jesus had done for Lazarus, on account of him, many were believing in Christ. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but he was dead. Okay? He was dead. I haven't been in, La yes, you have been in Lazarus' shoes. Okay? You have been. Every one of you in this room, if you believe on Jesus Christ, if, who, who's a Christian in here? Who's been saved by Christ? Raise your hand. Okay. You should be way more excited about that. You're a miracle. Like, we talk about all of this stuff, and right, because it's hard for us to comprehend. It's hard for us to truly understand. It's like, and we treat all this stuff as if it's just mere metaphor. But there is a nature thing that happened in you. There's a regeneration thing that happened in you because of the power of Jesus Christ, the power of his spirit. It's not just wordplay. It's not just metaphor. You've been changed. You've been resurrected. You were once dead in your sins and transgressions. But thanks be to God, because of his great love for you, he made you alive together with Christ because of his grace. You're a miracle. You are a miracle of God. And because he was a miracle the Jews wanted to kill Lazarus too. And I, I read that this week and I went, are you kidding me? Sickness didn't take him out just a few days earlier. You think you're going to kill him? Like, really, like, he was just dead. 
He raised back to life. Let's kill him again. Thought it was funny. So they're at this dinner party. I don't know if you guys realize this, but this is the 35th sermon that we've had in the book of John. We're just getting into chapter 12, right? And we get this time marker here. Verse 1, it says, six days before the Passover. We have a time marker here. We're six days before Passover, and yes, it's that Passover. It's the last Passover. It's the last, six days before the last supper. Essentially, what we have here is the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, right, pre-resurrection, starting here in chapter 12. And it's astounding because we're just over halfway through the book of John. And if you look ahead, right, we're in the last week of Jesus' earthly, and John is going to devote chapter 12, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 to the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's a lot of text. 12, 13, all the way, all the way to 19. So we're going to spend months covering his last week. Because there's so much great teaching in there. Some scholars debate over the chronology of all the events, but John gives us this time marker for his readers in verse 1. It says, six days before Passover, which means six days before he washes his disciples' feet. Six days before the Garden of Gethsemane and his sleepy disciples who can't tarry with him. Six days before Judas's ultimate betrayal. So the end is coming soon for Jesus, and he knows it. The Jews are plotting. Judas's heart is spoiled. The plan and will of the Father is unfolding. And they're at a dinner party. Verse 2 says that they gave a dinner for Jesus, which seems to indicate that it's put on in his honor, right? He raises Lazarus. Let's throw him a dinner. Like, it's the least that we can do. Lazarus is there. Let's celebrate new life. Let's celebrate the raising of my brother. So they show appreciation. It seems like it's at the house of Simon the leper. We don't have that in this text, but we do have it in some of the other gospel accounts. We're not sure who's all there, but apparently the Simon the leper, Mark 14 tells us that. He was once a leper, right? He's not any longer a leper. He wouldn't be allowed back into civilization if he was currently one, so apparently he was healed by Jesus. Another great testimony. Some scholars suggest that maybe this Simon the leper is the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We don't really know. But we know that he's probably there. We know that the dead guy is there. Lazarus is there, no longer dead, reclining at the table. We know in verse 2 that Martha is there doing her Martha thing. It says that Martha is serving. She's scurrying about serving Jesus and the guests, right? She's the one of action. She's the one of activity. Martha's the one who ran out to meet Jesus before he got into Bethany to tell him about Lazarus. Mary stayed back, and she was mourning. Makes me think of Luke chapter 10. Do you remember what was said of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10? They're kind of pitted against each other here a little bit. Not really, but kind of. Uh, Luke chapter 10, it says in verse 38, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. 
And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so it's, it's interesting because it seems like at least back in Luke chapter 10, she was distracted in her serving. And the Lord seemed to like adjust her thinking just a little bit, right? Because there is good that happens in the serving of God. There is, good, there is good worship that should be in our service. It should be worship, not distraction. And I think and I hope that Martha probably had come a long way in her thinking that as she's sitting here in John chapter 12, serving Jesus and the guests that are in that home, that she was serving from a place of worship, from pure worship. My worship is merely heartfelt adoration. We can express it in various ways. We can express it in so many ways. In a few, a few minutes ago, we were singing out songs, like the scriptures over and over and over again command us to sing. And some of you don't like singing. I get it. Some of you dudes in here, some of you men in here, we have a hard time with singing sometimes. I don't. I sing in the, like, I sing in the shower. Like I sing all the time. It's annoying probably to my family. We're commanded to express our worship, and I think one of the beautiful ways that we do that is in our service. There are times to sing songs. There are times to raise hands. There are times to lift voices, and there are times to merely sit at his feet in his presence. There are times to be still and quiet and hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, and I think, honestly, I think we struggle with that form of it probably the most. There are times to serve. There are times to go. There are times to act and meet needs. And all of it should be beautiful worship. There are times to worship through service in the service of God's people. I get frustrated sometimes. I have conversations with folks in our congregation. And, uh, you know, there, there are seasons of ministry. There are seasons to step back from ministry. It's totally fine. This is not a, a dig at any one person. Uh, or anybody. There's no specific even instances in my brain at the moment. So just let me be clear about this. I'm not gunning for you. Okay? There's sometimes where people are like, my heart's not in it anymore. I don't feel like it's worship for me anymore. So I got to step back. I can't do what I'm doing any longer because my heart's not in it. Or I'm not, it's not worship any longer. For me, it's all, like, I'm glad you recognize it. Like, that's always the first part. Like, you got to recognize it. But for me, the answer is not to step back from it. Like once I recognize it, there's a hard adjustment that needs to happen. The answer is not to withdraw and give in to flesh and go, okay, it's too hard, it's too busy. But the answer is to adjust my heart and worship again. To adjust my thinking and my surrender and worship again in the service. And so in anybody around here, I hope that whether it's coffee or kids areas or greeting or setting up chairs or whatever it is, it should be from a place of worship, right? If it's not, we're doing it wrong. But sometimes when you're not feeling it, it's those moments, even like when I'm sitting here in service, I'm going, I'm not feeling uh, Friday night at my house, house worship and prayer, it's awesome, beautiful time. 
half hour, hour, two hours beforehand, I was not feeling it. Wasn't feeling it. Didn't want to do it. Struggling. The Lord was so beautiful and so faithful. The Lord was so beautiful and so faithful. And I thought, nope, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a time thing. It's a, it's a heart thing. I need to fix. I need to let the Lord fix this. Let it be worship. I had a pastor one time. Uh, I heard him say, uh, you worship your way into trouble, and you also worship your way out of trouble. And what he was saying is, like, there's a lot of times where our hearts get off. And we start to worship the things of this world. We start to worship our, our own time. We start to worship this or that. And often what happens is, is we get into trouble because we're worshiping something else. The answer is to worship your way out of that trouble. Get your eyes on Jesus. Press into him. Worship him. Serve him. Worship him. There's a beautiful balance to serving and to sitting try to stress this with my kids. My kids are now getting of the age where they want to help out around here. They want to serve. They want to come early with me, and they want to help out on, uh, in worship, or they want to help out in the tech booth, or they want to help out in the kids' areas. And there's this beautiful, like, I want to be a little bit sensitive with that, and I want to let them serve God's church, but I also want them to learn how to just sit in his presence and to sing unto him as well. I think a lot of times, depending on your makeup, depending on your wiring, we have a lot, we have a hard time. I have a hard time sometimes sitting with the Holy Spirit because I get way too uncomfortable. And I know that there's like work that needs to be done between me and the God of the universe. And I can come up with a really good excuse in my brain going, I should be doing this. And it's cool. Like it's awesome. It's something that needs to be done around here. So I'll be like, I'm going to go help get the signs. <laughs> I'm going to go help do this. I'm going to help, help tear down uh, hospitality or whatever it might be. Like there's something that can be a little bit harder to just sitting in the presence of God and worshiping in that moment. Sometimes it's easier to serve than to press into the presence of God. So our context again. We're at this dinner party for Jesus. Probably Simon the leper's house. Martha's there. Probably the other woman, the other women are probably also serving. Culturally, this would have been likely that the women were serving, the men were reclined at the table. And since the dinner was for Jesus in his honor, Mary had a special way to honor him. Read verse 3 again. It says, Mary therefore took a pound. Now a pound is... Uh, a Roman pound. It was called a litra. It was actually about 11.5 ounces. And so I actually, this is a 12-ounce bottle, right? So we have about this much perfume she has. Expensive ointment, it says in verse 3, made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Have you ever experienced anything weird in a church service? Some of you have, I can tell. Like this, just like, this isn't a church service. This is a dinner party. And so this would have been weird. Just make, make no mistake, what, what Mary did was weird. It was expressive. It was, ex, it was a spectacle. It was an interruption to a dinner. She comes to him. 
And one of the weird things is that she lets her hair down. Culturally, this would have been a no-no. Culturally, a woman would have her hair, which is her glory, like she would have had it bound up and it would have been up. It would not be let down for anybody except her husband, probably behind closed doors. And so she comes to Jesus. She pours out her prized possession on the feet of Jesus. And she lets her hair down and she wipes his feet with her hair. It was a scene. It was a spectacle. But it was beautiful. And Judas objects. You ever stood back and seen someone worshiping and you're kind of like in your mind, you're kind of judging what they're doing? You ever have that at a church service where there's somebody who's into it just a little bit more than they should be? I have, honestly. I remember like there was this young lady who was uh, kind of in the back of the room one day at, at a church service that I was at, and she was all, like pretty much dancing. Hands are up. She's dancing. I think she's got her shoes off. And like the, the, the pastor in me is going, okay, is that right? Is that, can you do that? Like is that supposed to be happening? Because it's a little bit like, you know, she's in the back of the room. She's not in the front of the room. She's not like, hey, look at me. Because like, that's usually what we think. We go like, that person's a little bit too into it. I'm sure they're all about themselves. And like, so then the, like the, the Pharisee in me goes, okay, we got to stifle that. We got to shut that down because that's a spectacle. And this young lady at the back of the room, she's dancing and praising the Lord. Shoes off, unabandoned. It's a scene, but it's not a scene because she's in the back. But she's having this beautiful time with her and Jesus. I get to know her a little bit. I get to hear her story. I get to hear what the Lord has delivered her from. That she was once into witchcraft and the occult. That she was once uh, at such a place where she has sold herself to make ends meet. That the Lord came and met her and saved her and redeemed her. If you ain't dancing over that, I don't, I don't, I, there's no other appropriate response. There's no other appropriate response. I think about the account in Luke. There's, a, there's, a, there's an account very similar to this, and some scholars don't think it's the same because there's some details that are, that are not quite right. It actually it's a, it's a, it seems to be a, a party that the Pharisees invited Jesus uh, into. Luke, Luke 7, I believe, is the account. Some scholars think it's the same, and just some of the details are different, but I think there's enough difference there that you could probably think that maybe it's just a different account. But there is a woman that comes in. She's not named. She's called a woman of the city. That is a nice way to say she's a filthy, rotten sinner. Promiscuous. She's a woman of the city. And she comes in some of the similarities that she has an ointment of uh, an alabaster flask. And she comes to his feet and she's sobbing at his feet. And she's washing his feet with her tears. And wiping it with her hair. So again, some similarities. Jesus, one of the Pharisees, objects. 
Man, if you had known who this woman is, if you'd known how filthy and dirty she is, if you would just know who she is. He's like, let me tell you a story. He says, Simon, there's another similarity. Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say it, teacher. Tells a parable about debts that are owed. One debt is smaller, one debt is greater, but both debts are forgiven. At the end of the story, at the end of the parable, he says, okay, so which one do you think, who do you think loves more? Simon answers, the one whose big debt, the larger debt, was forgiven. One who's been forgiven much loves much. One who's been forgiven much worships much. We think way too lightly of our sin. You have been forgiven much. I don't care what your story is. I don't care if it's one little white lie or you're the dirtiest adulterer. You're the, the, the uh, whatever. Name, name the big sin. None of it, none of it, none of it can stand before a holy God. None of it. On my best day in my flesh, I deserve all the wrath and hell of God. I deserve all of it. On my best day, on the day that I have it all together and all figured out, I deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus, but Jesus met me. Jesus loves me. Jesus redeemed me, not because of me, but simply because of his love for me. I have been forgiven so much. So let my worship be much. Let my worship be much. When I look at Mary's beautiful worship, right? It's marked with humility. It's marked with this beautiful humility. She comes and she goes to the feet of Jesus. And she takes her most prized possession. She takes this treasure, this, this gift that is costly. She takes her most she takes it to the feet of Jesus. Feet in this day were objectionable. They were dirty and filthy. The roads were not paved. They were dirt. Animals walked them daily. Animals don't go looking for a bathroom when they got to go. They just go. When you walk into a dinner party, it's, it's common for the servants of that house to wash your feet as you enter the house. Mary comes with her treasure, with the most prized possession she has, and she pours it out on the most objectionable part of a man, the least of Jesus is worthy of our best. The most humble, most like worthy of our best, of her hair to come down and to wipe his feet. Her extravagant worship is marked with humility. She 
loves much. She's been forgiven much. And as I've said, it's also marked with treasure. This costly perfume, this expensive perfume. Judas tells us, Judas, ah, the one who's going to betray in a few days. The one whose heart is spoiled. It's not that he cares for the poor. He's the one who teaches us how expensive this per. He did the calculations in his brain going, that's a lot of money she is just pouring out on his stinky feet. 300 days, 300 denarii, which was equal to uh, 300 days worth of wages. Okay, so almost a whole year. A year's worth of wages. Even if you were to do the calculations at minimum wage right now, you'd still be at about $26,000 of perfume. What is 300 days wages to us now? In our current context. Where did she get it? Did she save up for it? Did, the, did Mary and Martha and Lazarus, do they pool their money? Do they go, is it like going in on a gift for someone? Like, hey, let's all pitch in and get something for Jesus. Some scholars think that this was her dowry or this was in her inheritance, that maybe this was a family heirloom saved and passed down generation to generation. Whatever it is, what, however she got it, it was her treasure. It was the grandest, most costly gesture she could come up with. Like I said, she goes to the most appropriate place, to the feet of the king of all kings, and she pours out her life savings. She pours out her most valued treasure, the most costly gift she could come up with. She puts it on his feet. And the wonderful fragrance filled the entire house. As we wrap up this morning, what's our worship like? Is it costly? Is it full of humility? Is it full of treasure? Is it costly or is it convenient? Do we understand what we've truly been forgiven of? Do we understand the depths of Christ's work, what he has done for us? Is our worship full of that beautiful repentance, extravagant and expensive worship? As we've turned away from our sin, as we've turned away from the systems of this world and treasuring up Christ in his kingdom, does our worship reflect it? He is worthy of our worship. On a cosmic level, right? We know he's worthy. We know he is the Lord of everything. He is great and mighty. He's the one who hung the stars in their place. But that seems so far off and so distant sometimes. On a truthful level, we know that Christ is worthy because we've seen and read his goodness in this book. But on a personal level, on a personal level, he has shown himself so worthy. Every one of you has a story in this room of what Christ has done for you. 
how he has saved you and redeemed you, how he has called you out of darkness, how he's called you out of death like he did to Lazarus, how he's made you alive. I want us to be a church full of worshipers. Not just in song. Yes, in song on a Sunday morning. Like, there's a lot of times where the worship leader in me, like, looks out over the congregation and I go, like, I don't think you believe a word you're singing. Like, I don't think there's, there's not a connection between the words coming out of your mouth and your heart in this moment. And sometimes I get it. I totally get it. There's some days where that's just the, the, the wrestle in the flesh. There's some days where I have my eyes closed and I'm singing a song in my heart that is completely different than what Nate is singing. But I want our worship to be full of humility and full of treasure because Christ is our treasure. Is it costly? Or is it convenient? I want to encourage you, church, reflect on the goodness of Christ in your life. And let your worship abound. Let your worship abound. Yes, in song here as we wrap up this service today. Let your worship abound. But as you go from this place, like I want you to treasure Christ in such a way where when you go out, like we talked about last week, when you go out to share the gospel with your neighbors and with your family and with your friends, that it's not just duty. It's not just because the good book tells me to. I can't do anything else because he's been so good to me. I can't do anything else, but this life is now on display like Lazarus' life is on display. This life is now on display for the glory of Christ. I want to cherish him. I want to treasure him. I want to behold him, and I want to worship him truly. Is that where your heart's at? Some of us, I think we need to do some business with the Holy Spirit. Some of us need to repent. Some of us just need to repent. Need to turn, need to confess and repent today and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my convenient worship. The opportunistic worship that I have, like when it's there, when it's Sunday morning, yes, I'm a worshiper, yes, I'm there. But like, no, this life, hand it over. Humility marked with something that's costly. Today's the day. Let's repent. Let's turn. That's why we come together like this and hear the word. That's why we preach the word of God. It should confront our flesh. Let's not just gloss over it. Confess, repent, do some business with the Holy Spirit, and leave this place changed. He's faithful. He's faithful. We were praying on, on Friday night. I've been praying a lot of prayers for this church. And I was praying, and Jesus said, I'm going to do it. I don't even know what it all means. But I remember just like sitting there with tears in my eyes, going, he's doing it. He is doing it. He is doing his work in us. He's going to do it. He's faithful. Don't fight it. Don't fight the Spirit. Don't let your flesh fight the Spirit. Respond in worship. Make it humble and make it costly. Let's stand. Jesus, thank you for this morning. I thank you for your grace to us. I thank you for the beautiful examples we have in your word.
But God, even more than that, I thank you that it's true. I thank you, God, for your spirit alive in this place. And so, God, wake us up. The sleepy bonds of religion, I ask them to be gone in the name of Jesus. And God, I pray that this church would worship you in every aspect possible. In song, yes. In finances, yes. In sharing the gospel, yes, yes, yes. Let us be the church to the glory of your name. Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name.